no different than. Just think of it just like um, imagine that you're somebody who knows nothing about a recording studio at all, and you're just like telling them for the first time what this is. So you can maybe just start by telling us like you've got two rooms. What yeah, are, okay. What are the two rooms? So do? the studio consists of two rooms. So we have a live space, which is where the musicians record their music and where all the microphones are. So, um, and then that's separated by a big wall with glass, so you can still have, um, you know, physical and eye contact. And then you would talk to the artists via a talkback microphone, and all the artists and performers are wearing headphones, so you can talk to them via that. And they talk back to you through the um, microphones. And then in the control room where all the recording equipment is, uh, I have a recording console, which is from 1985, and it's a Neve V1 console. And that has all the microphone preamps, so the microphones plug into each channel of the console. And then they then go into a digital interface which then converts the audio into digital information which then gets recorded onto the computer but back before computers all the console would then go to a tape machine so the computer is basically just replaced the tape machine so you play goes through the console into the computer and then back from the computer back out through the console to listen again and um any external outboard equipment, um, compressors and um, digital effects are purely just for my personal enjoyment. They're not strictly necessary anymore, but I just personally enjoy having them. I'm also a bit of a collector with old equipment, so that's why I have a big ridiculous console from the 80s, which you don't really need, and all of this stuff you don't really need but I just enjoy having it and collecting it. It's almost like collecting stamps or cars or whatever you can afford to collect. And tell me about uh, sort of week in the life of Murray in here. Uh, so I guess my main job in here is to um, meet with a band or an artist and discuss with them what they are after. I try to get what their final product in my head so I can you know, get to that point. And um, so predominantly if it's a band, we'll start tracking the drums first and then layer everything on top of the drums because most uh, recordings these days are not done live anymore. They're done person by person. Each person can just really focus on their part, nail their part, and uh, my job is to make sure that all the individual microphones on the drum kit or guitar or whatever or working properly have correct level into the preamps and the computer and also to equalise and fix any problems and I'll also coach people which is called producing so producing is becoming a bit of a lost art I think in the um, good way of describing it I figured out just recently to people that don't know anything about it is I'm like a personal trainer for performance. So, you know, most people come in here and 
uh, recording is very different from live in that you don't have an audience, you're in a room by yourself, it's very difficult to get the same energy that you'll get on a stage with a room full of people. So my job is to try to, you know, pump people up and give them some energy and get them to give a good performance because to me the performance is what people are going to listen to. No one listens to the gear and no one walks out at the end and go, I can really hear the console. They just go, does my song sound good or not? And the best way to do that is to encourage people and get the best performance out of them. Amazing. Yeah. Um, how do you do that? Uh, <laughs> years of experience, I think. It's not something that can be taught because you need to have the, f- the end product in your mind and you need to be able to somehow get the person to deliver what you're hearing in your head and what you're hearing in your head, the level of what that is, is just years and years of experience, trial and error. And, I mean, every time I record, I feel I'm getting better and better and better and I've, I've been doing it for so long. It's just it's art and you never get to a point where you're like, oh, this is it. I've nailed art. So it's, you know what I mean? So I produce the masterpiece. Yeah, so it's like everything you do is different. There's nothing that's ever the same. No two singers are the same. Everyone has different um, ways of performing. Everyone has different insecurities. A big thing about producing is making people feel really comfortable so they get over their little insecurities. And a lot of the time people are singing about quite personal things too. Most songs are, you know, breakup songs and whatever. So you have to try coach that person into... It's almost like therapy. You need to get out of them what they experienced at that time so they can deliver the correct emotion of whatever the song is about. If it's a happy song, they've got to be super happy. And another thing I've learned over the years is that, um, you know, the saying, like, you've got to kind of be, like, ten times bigger on camera to... Because, you know, you get on camera and you sit there and you look like the most boring person on earth and you've got to be really over the top just to look normal. Same with recording. You've got to be really over the top because people can't see you, they can only hear you. So you have to get um, all these extra emotions that you normally get from seeing a person or being next to them or whatever, but only through your ears. So you've got to try get them to sing 100 times bigger than they would normally sing which is hard. I mean, I can see the real value then in having someone produce your record or your song or whatever because... I think a producer is, after doing it for a while, that's where I'm figuring out that's where you should best spend your money, getting a good producer because any monkey can plug in a microphone and turn up a preamp and press record. That's not art, like getting the performance... That's the thing that people listen to. So I imagine, so just thinking about drums, you come in, they may or may not have a click or some backing track or someone might be playing something while they play. Yeah. And they might just be really focused on the click or the backing track or something and I guess your job is to, like, get them to feel more like they're in a live gig or Absolutely, something. yeah. You've got you've to get out of the, it's called red light fever. Right. Because, like, in the old days when the red light would come on when you record... It's the same with like being on camera when someone press action or like starts filming and you get nervous. You've got to be at this point where you're no longer nervous about recording because 
you've kind of got to get out of your head way, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, and I guess the producer helps you get there. Yeah, yeah. so I think, um, uh, for example, I recorded a guy the other day and it took us, we recorded this um, ballad and ballads are a really good example of you, you need the most amazing vocal you can possibly get because you can't hide behind anything with a ballad. The vocal is the main focus. And yeah, we spent uh, spent two hours with him just on the lead vocal and um, I was sort of helping him to guide where each line should go, how much emphasis each word should have that sort of thing and the song has to be a journey you can't just sing the same the whole way through has to have crescendos and dips and swells it's sort of like a movie like it has to have peaks and drops at the right points so that the listener doesn't get bored as well it is super important hey thanks so much for uh showing me through your studio and spending a bit of time chatting with me about it yeah oh no for me living in the mountains is purely because i like it here because i grew up here it's cheaper than the city. I wouldn't be able to have this studio in the city just purely because of cost. Mm. And also sound-wise, like, I don't have neighbours on that side, for starters, yeah. and I am the neighbour on that side. So I've got a really good buffer up here, which is just impossible. We cannot have that in the city. Yeah. And um, being a drummer, it doesn't matter where you live because gigs are everywhere. So no matter where you live, you have to travel so it, it it really doesn't matter. So you may as well live live where you want to live. Want. Yeah. yeah. Um, can you tell me a little bit about um, the challenges of being a sort of uh, audio producer, audio engineer? Are you audio engineer? Is that yeah, audio engineer. audio engineer. Because the challenges of being an audio engineer today. Uh-huh. of like rent yeah. and, and those types of things. Well, like definitely that. the money thing has changed big time, like huge since um, probably computers came about because I know for a fact that studios, I mean, to have a professional recording, you had to go to a professional studio back in the day. It's just almost unobtainable back home. So studios were just constantly booked out night and day they used to have two slots, like a daytime slot and a nighttime slot. Whereas now, um, because of technology, anyone can buy a laptop and a little two-channel interface and get pretty decent results at home. So you, I think the challenge today is you have to be better than what people can still get at home. and But even still, people aren't willing to spend the same money because they're not making any money off music anymore. So that's another huge flip. So back in the day where studios were charging a lot, it was justified because you could make money off the product, whereas now it's almost like a labour of love. People put their music up on Spotify or iTunes or whatever, make no money, and it's like you've just got to have it there to get people to come to your gigs it's almost like that's a, that's your leaflet, if you will, now. So you can't charge as much as you used to, regardless of the gear you have or the experience you have. I mean, you can a little bit with once you start getting some credits and whatnot, but it's still super competitive because everyone has a studio, in inverted commas. Yeah. 
So you would put then the pressures of your business down to the changing music industry, where previously um, you would record an album, you would put that album out, there would be album sales, you would get a part of that. And with the kind of like digitization and the tech company penetration into the music industry, uh, less reward for, um, or less returns for artists. Yeah. yeah, from the actual recording itself, yeah. I mean, I, I know for a fact that artists are making all their money now from gigs and merch, right. not from the actual music, which is ironic. The thing that should be the main product is now worthless. Yeah, wow, that's really... So there's been a flip in the industry from uh, recording and recording sales to... Uh, now touring and, and merchandise. Yeah, and that's why, and even I'm sure you've seen that everyone's touring all of a sudden yeah. ever since sort of like maybe 2015 that's just been a huge increase in bands, all these bands that you thought were dead and gone, all of a sudden now touring again because no one's making any money off the actual music, yeah. which is so, yeah, once again, so strange. Can you tell me a little bit about maybe from your time at Sony or here, or maybe a bit of both. Yeah. What goes into building a studio? So how big a financial commitment is it? And what are the kind of key elements? And how much space? I guess I'm particularly interested in how much space you need to run something like this. Oh, I think um, space is important if you want to it depends on what you're recording obviously like I'm, I'm a band person so I like to record bands so if you want to record bands you need at least a big enough space to have a drum kit so for me building this studio having a room that was decent enough size to have a drum kit and capture some room ambience is a hundred percent important but then on the flip side if you're just doing electronic music then all you need is a bedroom so the space is purely based on what style of music and what goes into the music or, you know... I mean, I guess the big studios like Studio 301 or whatever, um, there's not too many of those big ones around anymore because no one's recording orchestras much anymore and, you know, full band sessions anymore. Everything's all done one person at a time. So that can minimise space as well. And I think, the once again, the technology and being able to fix things has um, brought the spaces down in size as well because you only need big enough room for one person at a time as opposed to the drum kit in that room, guitarist in that room, etc., etc. Yeah. Like So at Sony, they have a room a little bit bigger than my live space and then uh, uh, one, two, three four extra booths off that to have other musicians in as well. And then the control room was a little bit bigger than this. So that... that But that studio at Sony, that's a pretty standard 70s, 80s, 90s size studio, I think. Yeah. What do you... What, what do you think about people now being able to make music in their bedroom, at home, record 
on their computer. Oh, well, I think it's great because that's how I started. Yeah. So without that, I wouldn't have been able to then develop and grow to a point where I have what I've got now and I wouldn't have got that job at Sony because I had to develop my skills and I got that job based on my skills. So, I mean, it's amazing that you can do that and you can experiment till the cows come home and you don't need all this expensive outboard stuff or real gear to make something good, I don't think. So why do you love this gear? Well, I love it because it's uh, a combination of reasons. Obviously, nostalgia is a big one. And it, um, I like the sound of it, but you can, just from my experience, this sort of equipment doesn't necessarily sound better, but once you learn it and learn how to push it, then you can get sounds from it that you can't get from the computer. But it's something that you have to spend time with. It's like playing a guitar and learning the ins and outs of that particular guitar and how it works with you. And so um, for me, working with this console, I've had it for uh, about eight or nine years now, so I'm really starting to know it back to front, know where you can push things and what sound you can get from it that you just can't get from a computer. Yeah, I like that. I like the way you talked about using the control, the the desk, like playing an instrument. It is an instrument, yeah. yeah. People forget that this stuff, even though it's a piece of technology, you don't just plug it in and it sounds good. Um, I was thinking about this the other day, that if you, like from a psychological point of view, no piece of gear or instrument has a sound. It only has a sound once it's combined with a human. Mm. So, I mean, I could play that drum kit and you can play that same drum kit and it's not going to sound like the same drum kit. And same with this desk. Like, no two people will make this desk sound the same. It's it's an instrument and it's a tool. Uh, Like, a, a good example I give people when they come in here, it's like, this is like a drop saw. You know, a really good builder will be able to use that saw a hundred times better than you can use that same saw. So what's the future of this equipment and kind of thinking about, you know, analog gear like this as an instrument and something you play and something you practice and master? Well, I think it's always going to be around because companies are still making it. Otherwise, they wouldn't be making it. So it's still going to be around, but um, I don't think there's... Anyone, I mean, there's a couple of people, obviously, but predominantly most of society in this realm still use a computer with it. So it's just become a hybrid setup for everyone now. Mm-hmm. So people pick and choose what parts of which realm they like. So, like, for example, the editing on a computer is a bazillion times better than chopping up tape. So why would you even bother chopping up tape? Yeah. just to say that you did it. <laughs> like, So, yeah, f- there's obviously bits and pieces that are better in each department, but not, nothing's better or worse, I don't think. I think technology's so caught up now. It's not like when digital first came out and people were sort of scared and transitioning and whatnot. I think it's pretty up to par now. Yeah. Like, I know for a fact that I've done a lot of A-being with gear, 
and with the digital version and the real version and I can't tell the difference. What's it like... So I'm interested in what's it like to be... Like run a creative business, basically, to be a professional drummer, to be a professional sound engineer. Is What's it like to do that today? Is it easy, hard? What makes it easy or hard? Um, well, I think the thing that makes it easy is putting in a ton of work to make sure that you're ready and great when an opportunity presents itself because everything that's happened to me that's been good has been it's not necessarily luck it's it's that something's come up and I've been able to nail it when that opportunity's arisen so I don't think anything's really changed in that respect because it's still at the end of the day relies on the person's talent and ability and a big thing in this industry is um, being pleasant to work with yep. because a lot of the time I know for a fact that people get gigs not necessarily because of their talent but a combination of their talent and their personality. Mm. Is it easy to be an audio engineer and drummer today? Like is it easy to make a living doing that? Uh, it's not. Or it, yes and no. I mean, it depends on how picky you want to be and um, whatnot. I mean, I could gig a lot more than I do, but I've reached a point where I'm starting to say no to a lot of the crappier gigs because I've just done them for so long that I can't stand to do them anymore. And I'm trying to step out of the lower income gigs and try get higher ones and um but there's so, there's so much work there's endless work still yeah. you just have to be willing and it's all it's all just networking as well in this industry yeah, there's no such thing as resumes or things like that it's all word of mouth mm-hmm. and even advertising to a certain degree doesn't work with even studios because why would someone just come to you just because you've, your studio looks good? I mean, they're, they're interested in what it sounds like and who they're going to work with. So, yeah, once again, it sort of really falls back on you as a person combined with your ability as to how much work you can get. Mm. But I've never had trouble getting work. But like I said, I've worked my ass off to be prepared in the situations when work presents itself. Yeah. Uh so your story is quite different from a lot of creative industries I've talked to, particularly in the music industry in Sydney. So if mm. we talk to rehearsal studios or uh, even studios that are recording stuff, if I talk to bands that live in the city and are trying to rehearse and pay for a rehearsal studio space, their story is a story of everything's very expensive and it's hard to find cheap space whether you're the owner of the rehearsal studio or trying to find a rehearsal studio um and you the story that you're telling me is is quite different yeah i wonder why why that is uh yeah i don't know um i wonder if it's the place or if it's just your uh at a part of your career that you don't have to worry about i think it's one you don't have to worry about the financial you've got a different financial arrangement yeah absolutely yeah. yeah 
Yeah, I think it's um, when I was younger, it was that same story. So I think it's your circumstance and and where you're at with things because yeah, when I was younger, we had to pay for rehearsals when I was in an original band, and but saying that it's not very expensive. I mean, if you rehearse, it's what like sixty bucks a night. So if you have a band of a couple of guys, it's you know yeah. ten fifteen bucks each or whatever. Yeah. So, so like Zen rehearsal now is like a hundred bucks. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, yeah. Obviously, things then, have gone up since. Yeah. And and I generally when I've been, I think also too I've, uh, I'm not paying for stuff anymore myself. So when I'm going to Adelaide to rehearse this week, I'm getting paid to go and rehearse, as opposed to me paying to rehearse. So I think that's just I'm at a different point in my career. And um, yep. and that's just come from hard work and and I guess luck. But like I said, I, I don't really believe in luck because it's you get what you've put it put in. Yeah, no, I don't believe in luck. It's like the idea of talent. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it's just um, yeah. Yeah. And there's, there's sometimes right place, right time. But everything I've always got has been from networks and people again so it really does come down to that to how much you can succeed and being likeable i love that um you mightn't have anything to say about this one but uh i'm interested in what we could do either is there something is so particularly in sydney there's various government policies that are trying to think about what, protecting creative spaces and providing cheaper rents for certain uh, industries and things like that. Um, is there anything that you can think of that would that we could do, either government or in the business sector or anything that would sort of make music industry thrive? Um, and I guess there's a couple of threats to the music industry, there's been things like um, noise complaints and pubs yeah. being affected by noise complaints. So Yeah, I've personally seen that over the years and obviously I've played at heaps of those venues that are now longer, no longer those venues because of those circumstances. Have, yeah, you, that, have you got any reflections on that? Oh, yeah, I don't know. The noise thing's difficult because um, yeah, noise is expensive to stop. Because the only way to stop noise is mass. So, like, you know, like a metre-thick concrete wall. And even that's not enough, you know what I mean? Like, it's... Like, I know huge nightclubs, um, uh, like Home Nightclub in Darling Harbour, they've got, like, quite substantial noise restriction... Oh, like, noise reduction stuff going on. Because if you go outside there, you can barely hear it. You can just hear the bottom end. But bottom end is the hard thing to stop because the waves are so big. They'll just go through. Yeah, like top end is really easy. Um, So, yeah, I don't... And obviously all the venues in Sydney and and, uh, all predominantly old and all the heritage stuff, you can't do anything. So they can't just go, okay, we're just going to put a metre, two metre thick wall there. And also then that eats into the space, like I was talking about. So... Like in this studio, I had to sort of weigh up space versus 
how much noise I wanted to stop and whatnot. So it, it is tricky. Yeah. But um, I like part of the other question you asked about what could help the music industry. Um, I don't know, you could sort of answer that in two ways because some people seem to thrive and other people don't. So I don't know if it's a case of people that aren't good whinging that the music industry is not good and blaming the industry as opposed to their talent because people that are good always seem to succeed. So, but it's like that in any industry, like, you know, if you're a crap mechanic, you're not going to get clients back, you know what I mean? It's a case of, it's still a business and that's what people forget. It's called the music business because it's a business. If you don't have a good product, you're going to fail. It's no different than having a shop with crap products. You're not going to sell anything and your business will go under. So, I mean, that's the harsh answer. But um, I think the one thing, if I could change the world and do one thing to help the music business, it would be to destroy the internet. Right. Tell me about that. Yeah, well... (laughs) It, like we've already touched on it, like that the internet to me is the one reason why music has been devalued because it's created um, like an endless sea of products. So it's the exact same thing as money or gold or anything. The more of something there is, the less value it has. So back in say, pre-internet, like, I guess, I don't know, what, 95 backwards or whatever, the only real music that was getting out there, and I don't mean real as in good or whatever, but, like, product-wise, was through record companies. So there was only a certain amount of music that was, I guess, mainstream and where people would go to get music as opposed to now you go on Spotify and there's a hundred bazillion things like where do you even start? It's like the Netflix conundrum. Like you go on Netflix and you can't find something to watch because there's too much stuff to watch. So it's the same thing with music. There's too much music now, so it's become devalued. And also everyone followed the stupid trend of Spotify going, well, if the mainstream stuff on there, then I better put my stuff on there. And so everyone just followed the leader and everyone gets no money from every stream. So it's it's that same thing of yeah. it's flooded, there's too much. And I guess you could also argue, and, and, and this is why I'm sort of torn with the home studio stuff, because on the one hand, yes, it's great because it gives everyone a chance to learn and a chance to be creative, and some amazing stuff has come from that. But on the other hand it's fueling the problem of too much and there's just a sea of endless music now that and and now also because of the internet there's not sort of tight funnels of things anymore or as you used to go to the record store hmv or whatever like we did when we were younger and that's where you'd find the music and that's the music and also um i have this argument with people too that Uh, And this is the other, like, annoying thing about the home studio thing versus back in the day is that 
most of the music back in the day was made by the best of the best because there was significant money being put into it. So um, I know people always say music was better back then and you could argue that it was because there was big budgets being put into it so they were getting the best of the best. You know, they were getting like the Steven Spielbergs but in music to direct and produce the music so it was the best producers with the best engineers in the best studios so the product was better, I think, and that's um, why people get confused, I think, with this sort of spawns back to the gear questions. People think the gear was good back then, but it wasn't the gear, it was the people yeah. back then I as well. I guess there was a process too. You gigged, and if you are good enough, you'd... Got then a, you'd be picked up, yeah. yeah. You'd get an audience sort of following you, uh, and then people would see you in the industry and then you'd get a deal and then that would and then the record company would invest in you and that's what it was people forget that record companies are purely an investment company they don't that's the one thing i learned whilst working at sony is they don't care about music they care about money they're an investment firm and but they have people that understand the music working within there to go, yes, these people have a good product, let's invest money into it to then get money in return. Mm. And that's why um, the argument of music was better back in the day spawns from, from exactly that, I think. Would you be less against the internet if Spotify was a not-for-profit and paid artists a better return on their listens? I do, but it's not going to work because of the way it's already... You can't go back, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. It's the whole, um, you know, if you give someone something for free for a while yeah, yeah, yeah. and then you start trying to charge them for it, they'll just be like, no, absolutely not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, why would I pay for something I just got for free? So it's, it's that sort of thing. So I don't think you can go back from that. And that's why I want to destroy the internet. <laughs> Sounds good to me. Um, anything else you'd like to say? So we're doing this um, thing about, you know, the music industry and whether you're playing an instrument or you're recording or you're running a rehearsal studio or you're running a live venue um, and sort of difficulties with doing that. Anything you'd like to say about what could make it better, why it's so bad? Uh, well, I think, obviously, the people making money off the actual product, that, to me, is the biggest issue in this day and age with music is, like I keep saying, it's literally valueless. I mean, people come in and pay me to get a product that I know that they're not going to make a cent from. I mean, they might make money from it in the other ways, like I was saying, like merch or gigs, ticket sales, whatever, but the actual song itself is is like an ad it's become literally an ad for all the other ways to make money from it so I think that's the biggest issue and I guess that's why everyone gets pissed off paying for rehearsals too because if you're a small band and you're not making the ticket sales and you're not making it's just like you're paying to do your own art but I mean every single artist there's not one artist out there that hasn't had to sacrifice or pay or do something to get where they are. 
everyone had to do something at some point and pay something. So I don't know if there is just an answer or a way to fix anything because it's more society that's the problem as opposed to just the music industry. And I always say to everyone too that money is the root of all evil. And if you any problem I can think of, I always trace back to money. <laughs> Every single one. It's always money. 